going to be in the, the Gospel of Matthew today, as we have been for the last um, several weeks. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. So if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, that's page 810. You can go ahead and, uh, and make your way there. I think it's a really important connection to make here. It's Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and as, as the, the passage that we're going to get into here in just a moment, anytime we talk about a mercy and justice issue, there's a really common foundational truth we have to drill down on and understand. And that is that, that people, you heard Sandy mention this too, people are image bearers of God. And as image bearers of God, people then are given this dignity and this worth that's just inherent to them because of who they have been created to be. So Genesis 1.27, right at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And I just would argue it's, it's impossible to overstate how central this is to why and to how we pursue being a people of mercy and justice in the world. This is central to every single topic that we'll talk about this month and all the other mercy and justice issues that we won't get to talk about this month. Really, without that view, without that understanding that people are image bearers of God, we lose our foundation for caring about these things. And we could talk about you know, secular humanists and how much I appreciate the good that they do in the world and how they care about people. I would propose they actually are kind of inconsistent in that because underneath it, they don't really have a basis for why they should treat people that way or care about people. People are just another living organism that occupy time and space in the world. But on the other hand, if as human beings were created by God, and if in creating human beings God confers upon human beings his own image, that's going to set people apart from creation in a really significant way. We're going to have roles within creation, how we treat and steward creation, of course, but this is going to bestow a worth and a dignity on people that the rest of creation does not have, and that's then going to bear weight on every single consideration of how we treat people and why we pursue mercy and why we pursue justice with people uh, in our world. So, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, clearly Sanctity of Human Life is an image of God issue. That's why we even have a, a reason to, to talk about that. But as we continue this study in the Gospel of Matthew, the passage that we're looking at today isn't about abortion, it isn't about adoption, it isn't about related sanctity of human life kinds of issues per se, but it is very much another mercy and justice topic that has everything to do with people and, and human beings as image bearers of God. So we're talking today about reciprocity and retaliation. Not maybe what you would consider to be like hot-button social justice issues, like human trafficking, like abortion, like racial reconciliation, other important issues. But the subject matter that Jesus deals with in this text really bores down into the root issues of how and why we treat other people the way we treat them. So I just want to invite you to consider that as we jump in. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38, I'm going to read through verse 48. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would help us to see how we would become people of mercy and justice and not just do actions of mercy and justice. And that as we consider it from that standpoint, we've got to wrestle through how can we allow evil things to happen to us and not retaliate, but also pursue justice for others in the world and be people of mercy in the world. These are complicated and difficult questions, and they really will expose us for who we are and how we view you and how we view ourselves in light of you. So I pray you'd meet us where we are. Just do deep work in our hearts this morning by your spirit. We pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So this, uh, for me, is really simultaneously one of the most compelling and convicting texts in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's compelling to me because it's easy for me to see how if we live this way, that's going to stand out in the best kind of way possible. If, you st- if Christians historically are, are actually one of the, the distinct contributions they've made historically is that they have been known for loving their enemy. That's not a, that's not a common thing along, among the history of, of civilization. So it's going to stand out in the best kind of way if we actually live this out. At the same time, it's one of the most convicting because perhaps like you, I read this and I just recognize I'm not inclined to live this way. An extreme example that I would tell in detail, uh, but I have a, a, I'm trying to keep it short for this morning. One extreme example from my life is uh, one of my best friends in the world is a guy named Billy, and Billy is a button pusher. Do you have any friends that are button pushers in your life? They, they take joy in kind of um, figuring out what's going to rile you up, and then they just hit that button over and over and over again until you snap. Uh, in college, there was a two-week stretch where, um, and he, he knows that, you know, I, I, Billy was the best man in our wedding, so we're, we're still good friends. We're, we're cool. I'm not, like, uh, outing him in an unfair way here. Um, there was a two-week stretch in college where he just did everything in his power to rile me up, to make me snap. And eventually, it worked, and it happened at Fuddruckers. It happened at the restaurant Fuddruckers, because why not? If you're going to snap, why not do it in a build-your-own-burger establishment? But... Uh, I'll, I'll skip the details. Basically, at the end of this two-week stretch, just kept kind of pushing these buttons. And, and as we're eating with a group of about ten people around this table, he says something, does something, he's, he's laughing hysterically, and I just can't take it anymore. I look over at him laughing hysterically, and I just punch him across the face. <laughs> the only time to date that I, uh, in my adult life, I guess I should say, that I have punched another human being, um, I, I don't plan on doing that again, but I guess I can't make promises um, in that. What is that? Okay, that's an extreme example of reciprocity. Payback. And though it might not always take such an extreme physical form like that, I think that's how we're naturally and commonly wired to behave. We're people of reciprocity. We're people who pay back what we receive from other people. We repay evil for evil, and we repay good for good. But what Jesus is is teaching here in this passage is that his disciples are called to something more than that. And they're called to something better than that. And that love beyond reciprocity is what we're going to be called to. That love beyond reciprocity, Jesus says here, occurs in two different directions. So on the one hand, it's love 
through restraint from reciprocal evil. We don't repay the evil that we have received. And in the other direction, it's love proactively beyond just reciprocal good. So those are two things we're going to talk about this morning, just briefly. Um, First, love through restraint from reciprocal evil. Among the oldest uh, recorded moral codes in the history of civilization, something called the Lex Talionis, the Law of Retaliation. And among the places it appears in the history of civilization is the Old Testament, the Old Testament Scriptures. Three separate places in the Torah record these words, and it commonly appears as the words Jesus quotes here in the book of Matthew. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. That is a law, that is a policy of reciprocity. If you cause harm to someone, that same kind of harm is going to be caused back to you. And in Scripture, it's applied to things as small as possessions. You, you harm or damage someone's possessions, you get your possessions damaged. All the way up to life for a life. If you kill someone, you're put to death for killing someone. Now, most of us are probably familiar with this law of retaliation. But there are two really important contextual pieces that we have to see as it appears in Scripture that often go overlooked. So one is that when this law of retaliation appears in the Old Testament, it appears as part of the judicial code for the nation-state of Israel. So it's a punishment, in other words, it's meant to be enacted and enforced by a governing body, not by individuals. So sometimes the law of retaliation is used as the basis for like vigilante justice or a personal vendetta which are fun to watch in movies. I saw The Revenant a couple nights ago. It's fun to watch that in, in movies. It's actually, we're not given license to do that by, by the law of retaliation in Scripture. As it appears in Scripture, it's justice that's meant to be carried out by a judicial body, by a governing body. And that was true of the nation state of Israel in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, that same power is given to governments, civil authorities in places like uh, Romans chapter 13. Okay, the other important contextual piece here thinking about the law of retaliation, is that it defines the maximum penalty, not the minimum penalty. And here's what I mean by that. Because we're people of reciprocity, when something bad, something evil happens to us or happens to somebody that we love, we want to turn around and inflict the same thing, but actually we usually want to inflict something even more than that. We want an eye-for-an-eye retaliation to be the minimum penalty consequence, but actually as it appears in Scripture, it's, it's defined as the maximum consequence. The consequence may only involve what's done to you. If it's one eye that's been damaged, you may damage one eye, not both eyes and hands and feet and like kill their family on top of that. That's, that's beyond what, what this is saying. So that's the law as it's laid out in the Old Testament Scripture. But as he does in, in every piece of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does here is challenge his disciples to a deeper understanding of the law of retaliation. And without removing a government's or judicial authority to pursue justice and to punish evil where that's necessary, what Jesus does here is focus his teaching on how we should personally respond to evil that is done against us. And what he says is, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. And he goes on to give these three examples of restraint where people do not repay the evil that they have received. So first, if anybody slaps you on the right cheek, hits you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. 
The most important application of this is that my friend Billy should have just let me punch him on both sides of his face, <laughs> then the one. <laughs> but, but what this part is, th- there's a physical element of restraint here. You don't physically repay evil for evil. Actually, though, even more than that, for the average person who is right-handed, to hit somebody on the right side of their face means this is a backhand slap. It's a backhand slap. And if any of you have ever been on the, the negative side of a backhand slap, then you would know better than I. Um, that's more an issue of having your honor insulted than it is of physical violence. It's a matter of reputation. And for me, that actually stings a little bit more. It stings a little bit more than just the physical violence. Few things uh, for me in my life make me as insistent on quick and retributive justice than if someone takes a shot at my reputation or someone takes a shot at my character or my integrity or those kinds of things. But Jesus says here, don't retaliate. Don't take the reciprocal shot. Turn the other cheek. Second example, if anyone sues you for your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The tunic is the, the lighter garment that's worn closest to the skin. The cloak is the outer garment. Think kind of like a coat, a heavier kind of garment. And there were specific provisions in the Old Testament law that protected people from losing their cloak. Like they couldn't be sued for their cloak if they were in debt, for example. And it's because without their cloak, they wouldn't be able to stay warm at night. So, So there were provisions in the law that allowed them to keep that. But what Jesus says here is if someone sues you for the garment that they actually have access to, go ahead and give up your right to keep the outer garment as well. Let them have that too. Third example, if anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two miles. This one's probably got the biggest disconnect for us culturally and contextually. But what what they're saying here, under Roman occupation in first century Palestine, Roman soldiers could actually forcibly make a Jewish citizen be a porter for them and carry their stuff for a distance. And and they use a mile here. I I don't know if it was literally a mile or if that's just like figurative for the actual distance that it was. But just imagine the humiliation and the insult that that would be to a Jewish man, to a Jewish woman who was forced to be a porter for the Roman soldiers. There's a streaming show on Amazon Prime right now called The Man in the High Castle. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It kind of posits uh, what would have happened if uh, the Nazi army and the Japanese armies won World War II and then occupied the United States. So if you think of it this way, think of your father or your grandfather living in the same exact town where he grew up being forced to carry supplies for the Nazis. Okay, that's the kind of insult and humiliation it would feel like. Maybe the closest we could, could, could taste of something like that in our day. Jesus says it's in that kind of scenario, in that kind of humiliation, don't just go the required distance, go twice as far. And then the last example there, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And here, here's the connection between all of these. Uh, the, there are certain rights that you and I feel entitled to. We might call them inalienable rights. And some feel like they're inherent just to our humanity. This is just who we are as people. We, we, are, we are entitled to these rights. Some are afforded to us by governing bodies. Some are um, violated by governing bodies. But Jesus says here, we should suffer the loss of those inalienable rights in order to avoid repaying evil for evil. In order to avoid this reciprocal evil. In order to avoid retaliation. He's saying, give up the right that you may actually have, but at least that you feel, to your honor. 
into your dignity, into your possessions, the one who begs from you, the one who borrows from you, your cloak. Give up the right to all of those things. Now, this is America, right? America, if you prefer. And so, I think for us, this is actually one of the teachings of Jesus that is going to be among the most offensive for us in our culture. I mean, we are the land of inalienable rights. And Jesus is going to offend every single culture, every single person in a different specific way. I think this is one that will do it for most of us. However offensive, though, we need to see that the call of Jesus on our lives is to non-retaliation, to restrain the natural pull that we feel toward reciprocity, toward getting even. Okay? And just to clarify something here really critically important, this is about our own personal heart-level response to evil that is done against us. So it's not about how like a governing body or judicial authority should handle punishment when laws are violated. It's not saying anything about how you can live out your life in a role, say it, you know, be it a judge or in the military or something like that, as an instrument of a governing body's authority. Okay, those are really important discussions and considerations. They're not what we're dealing with here in this text today. But here's the important thing. Where, where we're actually going to be called to be people of mercy and justice, to go to extraordinary lengths to uphold and defend the rights of other people, to extend mercy, and to be people of justice in the world for others, Jesus is going to say, for yourself, for your own personal rights, give those up and suffer the loss of honor and suffer the loss of dignity and reputation and possessions in order to avoid this reciprocal evil. Now, if that in and of itself weren't going to be difficult enough, Jesus then goes even a step further, and he says, don't just avoid repaying evil for evil. Actually, love proactively beyond reciprocal good. That's the second part here. See, reciprocity works in two different directions. On the negative side, it's repaying evil for evil, right? That's the lex talionis. On the positive side, it's quid pro quo, You do something good for me, and I'll do something good back for you. You scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours. And Jesus starts to identify this starting there in verse 43. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And that first half, love your neighbor, is a direct quote from the book of Leviticus. The second half, you shall hate your enemy, is a direct quote from nowhere in Scripture. But it is an example of a a systemic error made by the leaders of the Jewish people in Jesus' day and made by people in civilizations and for generations since and before. The Pharisees and the scribes, they knew that the law of God would call them to love their neighbor as themselves. And so as is the tendency of every single one of us as well, I think, they looked for the loopholes. They looked for the loopholes. They looked for the most narrow definition of the word neighbor, which would make that command as easy as possible to follow and would require the least amount of self-denial, would require the least amount of transformation. And you see this play out really vividly in Luke chapter 10, another gospel, where in Luke chapter 10, a Jewish lawyer asks Jesus how he inherits eternal life. And Jesus affirms for him, well, you you uphold the, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer asks this very telling follow-up question to that. He says, well, who is my neighbor? And it even says in Luke's Gospel, he says it to justify himself, to make that definition as narrow as possible. But what Jesus 
tells him in response to that is what we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan, where it's not the Jewish priest, it's not the Jewish Levite that is a neighbor to this man who's been robbed and beaten and left for dead. It's actually the Samaritan man who acts like a neighbor. It's the hated foreign enemy who is your neighbor. It's the person least likely to be considered your neighbor. And so Jesus doesn't allow the narrowing of that definition. He actually broadens it. And for, for the Jewish leader specifically, he's saying you, you can't just limit your definition of neighbor to fellow Jewish people. All the other people groups that live among you and around you, all of those other people, those are your neighbor as well. Even more, even with that broad definition, if there are those who are legitimately your enemy, Jesus says, don't hate them, love them, and pray for them, pray for those who persecute you, those who do violence to you on behalf, for, because you follow Jesus. So there's not just the restraint, right? There's not just avoiding evil for evil. There's actually a proactive love for your enemies. There's you taking the initiative to pray for them, to bring them before God in prayer, to ask for God to work in their lives. And I don't know if you've ever had someone that was like a legitimate enemy. Um, I don't think I have. I couldn't think of an example in my own life. But even if you wouldn't describe someone as an enemy... If you're at odds with someone, if there's enmity and hostility in your relationship, then you know something of this as well. You know firsthand how hard it is to show love in that, in that instance. You don't want to. You don't want to be charitable. You don't want to be kind. Maybe, maybe the best that you can do is to avoid repaying evil for evil. But it doesn't seem fair that Jesus is going to call you to even more than that, to love proactively beyond just avoiding repaying evil for evil. There have been times in my life, as I would imagine there have been in yours, where you read these words, you consider these words, and you think, like, come on, Jesus. Is this even possible? Is this even possible? And how could you call me to do this? This is not natural. But of course, that's exactly the point. It's not natural. Reciprocity is what is natural. But there's nothing unique, and there's nothing distinct or distinctly Christian about that at all. There's nothing God-dependent. There's nothing God-enabled about quid pro, quo, quid pro quo. Everybody does reciprocity. Everybody trades favors. And Jesus says, if you just love those who love you, if you greet only your brothers, well, that's what tax collectors and Gentiles do. And those groups in a Jewish person's mind represent like the lowest rung on the moral ladder. So Jesus is saying that that's just basic human instinct. Everybody does that. But for you, my disciples, there's something better and there's something deeper than that. A scholar named Alfred Plummer puts it this way. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. And to love proactively beyond reciprocal good is not human. It's divine. It's of God. It's of God in that it imitates the kind of love that God shows to all of his image bearers, be they just or unjust. As Jesus says, he, God makes the sun rise on all people. He makes the rain fall on all people without discrimination, without differentiation. 
It's what's sometimes referred to as the common grace of God, that he, has, that he shows kindness and care to all people, whether they embrace him or whether they spurn him. Love beyond reciprocity is also of God, and that it's not possible apart from the work of God in our own hearts. It's not possible. As Jesus says, this is what it looks like to live as sons of your Father in heaven. And it's in that that, that this becomes truly something distinct. Right? The Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus teaches these words, these hard words, he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching those people he has already drawn to himself. These are the ethics for those who have already entered the kingdom of God, who have been adopted as sons of the Father. How do we enter the kingdom of God? How do we become adopted sons of the Father? Well, we do that through the love of God himself. And if ever there were a love that went beyond reciprocity, it is the love of God for us. Who are we apart from God? We are those who have rejected him, rebelled against him. We are those who through our sin have have fractured the goodness of what God has created. And the only way that you and I are ever going to be able to love our enemies is if we start to grasp that you and I have no enemy like the enemy we were to God in our sin. And yet, the good news of the gospel, in the midst of that sin, while we were yet enemies, the Apostle Paul tells us, Christ died for us. See, instead of reciprocal evil, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we receive mercy. We do not get what our evil has deserved. And instead of reciprocal good, for there there really was nothing good that we could offer God on our own, instead of reciprocal good, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we receive grace. This unmerited, unearnable favor of God. So the love of God is not merely for us an example for loving beyond reciprocity, although it is that. It's our source for loving beyond reciprocity. It's the only work powerful enough to transform our hearts beyond what is natural and common to man, this repaying evil for evil and repaying good for good, and to enable us to actually love those who are evil, to love those who hate us, to love those who set themselves up as our enemies, who persecute us. Only the love of God is powerful enough to make us a genuinely loving and a genuinely merciful people. And just to bring all this together, this has everything to do with living a lifestyle of mercy and justice. Because as we look to Jesus as both our example and as the source of this kind of love, we also see how much an image of God issue it is to love someone beyond reciprocity. As, As we see our own deep worth and our own dignity as image bearers of God, we also then can start to see the worth and the dignity of other people who are image bearers of God. See, if if I can't see the worth that God has granted me, then I'm going to spend my whole life trying to prove that to myself and prove that to everybody else. And if I'm consumed by proving my worth, I'm going to cling to it, and I'm going to defend it, I'm going to fight people who threaten it in any way. And I'll live out this natural human tendency toward reciprocity. But, if I believe that God has conferred upon me all of the worth and all of the dignity that I could ever possibly need, 
then I become free to give up my rights in the eyes of other people. And I can start to say things like, may they trample my rights and my reputation if my non-retaliation and my proactive love, they might just get a small taste of the love of God. And I no longer need to prove myself or prove my rights or cling to them or fight for them anymore because as an image bearer of God, redeemed by the love of Jesus, I have all the worth I could ever need. Right? The, the real inalienable rights really are inalienable and not because a government gives them to you and not because you fight for them and preserve them yourself. They're inalienable because they've been given to you by the one who has created you. The more we grasp that, the more we recognize the image of God in others, we will see that even the worst offenders, the worst offenders, whoever we might put in that category, right, those who perpetrate sex trafficking crimes and those who, who set themselves up as our enemies and those who devalue the sanctity of human life, whoever you'd put in this category of the worst offenders, however marred and corrupted that image of God might be in them, they still bear the image of God. And if Jesus could love me beyond reciprocity, then could he not also transform me to love beyond reciprocity toward others, to show that love to others? If our eyes are on ourselves, and if the question is, how can I possibly love this way, then we never will. But if our eyes are on Jesus, and the thought is, oh, how he has loved me that way, then we will truly be on the road to a lifestyle of mercy and justice and the love of God himself. Amen. We pray for us. Jesus, we desperately want to be people who love this way because we see that you have loved us this way. And yet, so much in us rejects that and resists that and wants to fight for our rights and cling to our rights. When we're freed by you because of who you have made us and who you have redeemed us to be, we're free to give them up. We're free to not repay evil for evil and we're free to even go beyond repaying good for good. Would you bring to mind places in our lives even now where we, where, where, we are, where we act out of reciprocity and where you would call us to something beyond that. And we pray that, that we would be able to, as we pursue these issues of mercy and justice this month, differentiate between what is truly a pursuit of mercy and justice in the world on behalf of others and what is merely retaliation or reciprocity in our own hearts toward people that we don't like or people who have offended us only way we're going to do that is by experiencing your transforming love in our own hearts. So as we come to this table, which is a picture of that transforming love, meet us, strengthen us, show us the depth of your love that has gone infinitely beyond reciprocity. We pray this in your name. Amen.